Let's see. Open. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today, Cody, right out of the gate, we have we have to start today. We have to start today just uh, with an apology. We have to we have to start with an apology. An apology? Oh, an, an apology. An apology. Yeah. Okay, let's hear this. Yeah. No, it's a somber tone for this for this show. But um, last week, I one of my favorite players in the league, Franz Wagner. I, I I did him wrong last week. We did. We, you remember this? Remember this conversation we were having? Which which conversation, Ben? It was about Franz Wagner. Do you remember that one? Yeah, in our little twenty five under twenty five draft. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I went too far. I went okay. too far. I mean, I myself, looking at my notes after the show, you know, have Franz Wagner as more like a top one hundred player in the league, and 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 our, our the the draft. We were just. I was just so embroiled in the draft, uh, which if you've never done one, I absolutely never recommend ever doing one in your life. Uh, <laughs> I will never be doing one again. And, and, and the, the moment I got, I got swept up in the moment and uh, I need to issue an apology to, um, or Florida, the entire state of Florida, Orlando, um, all seven Magic fans. We, we have to stick together. You know, we, we, we if we're going to get a lineup of five, six, ten players or taller, Franz is going to have to be the point guard. So, uh, yeah, I, I I went too far on Franz. I got caught up in the moment. Well, listen, are the Magic are literally, they have the worst record in the league right now, right? It's not good, no. So, yeah, there's probably like four people that were like mildly unhappy about it. So, ultimately, like, I think the people accept the apology, but no one really cares, Ben. No, no, it's not that. It's not that. It's not actual Magic fans. It's 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 sort of the the basketball nerds, especially with a young player. Uh, I've be, I betrayed them. I, I betrayed them on the last episode, and I need I need to find a way to make it up to them. I'm not sure how, because we don't even know what we're going to talk about today. But <laughs> but let's see if we can do it. I do think like. After we had that draft, I wish we could have bottled up the conversations that we had analyzing the draft that just happened, because that might have actually been more interesting than the actual draft itself if we had released it as a podcast. You know, not to get too meta and break the fourth wall, but that's what I was hoping the podcast would have become is those conversations. And that's I think that's the problem with the draft format. Um, yeah. It may work on your on your favorite entertainment podcast, but I it. We we completely destroyed our conversations um, that compared to the ones we had act after the show about the actual issues we got into. Anyway, today um, I wasn't joking earlier when I said I have no idea what we're going to talk about. What what what's going on in the NBA? I, I watched a full live game last night between the Warriors and the Celtics. That was exciting. What what's you know Anthony Davis is averaging like 40 points a game this month. What's what's on your radar? You know, Ben, you can you can respond to this. We could talk about it for the full episode. That Zion dunk was sick. That was oh. sick. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. That it was, was a great dunk. Unbelievable. When he uncorked that, I'm like, oh my God, that everyone should just, the game's over. Let's just sell. Everyone storm the court. Let's open up for the fans. Just run out there and crowd him. I want to run all the way to wherever that game was and crowd it. That unbelievable. That was that was dunk contest worthy. It gave me nostalgia. Yeah, you know, I know, I know there was a kerfuffle, but for me, it gave me nostalgia 
to the great dunkers of the 90s and the 2000s and Vince Carter. And you get these guys in the league and you get them in open space at the end of games. And it was like a moment where in a live game, you could have a dunk contest level dunk. I think Vince has a, if not a 360 windmill, a 360 at the end of a game around like 2000 or 99 or something like that. Very similar situation in game dunk. So I, I just... I loved that, and boy, did Zion deliver! That was glorious. That if you haven't seen this dunk yet, that was, it was spectacular. It feels like, and maybe it's just because during the summer we watched, especially like Dominique Wilkins and some of these Eastern Conference Finals and whatever else. I, I feel like the windmill has been lost a little bit. I don't see as many windmills during games as I did as I did in the '80s. Maybe it was just because Dominique was like, "I'm actually out here to entertain everyone first and foremost. I'm going to throw down this windmill every once in a while because it just gets everyone going." So the Pelicans are actually really good, as we've talked about. Uh, they're they're difficult to guard because of Zion. We've talked about that before. I think we'll circle back to it uh, at a future time. But the interesting thing that you pointed out to me this week is that they're, I didn't realize this, they're actually third in the league in defensive rating right now, giving up just 109 points per 100 on that and Cleveland has the best defense Milwaukee has the second best defense there's actually a gap between Cleveland Milwaukee and the Pelicans who are all about four or five points ahead of the league and then the rest of the teams and it's like when I've watched the Pelicans and looking at their personnel you can see how there's more competent defensive pieces on the court at times certainly with someone like Herb Jones um, you know Jose Alvarado off the bench um, Trey's playing well. Uh, you even get a guy like Jackson Hayes for some rim. Is he even playing recently? I don't. I haven't seen them play in a couple weeks. But it's like you can you can see the pieces. And Zion, from what I've seen, his team defense has been been better this season, which is exactly what we were hoping for. A little bit more aware. His positioning's been better. Things like that. But man, to be third third in the league in defense, uh, that that really jumped out to me. I did not realize that they were there and you've been watching them. What, what's your feeling about what's the temperature about their defense right now? Well, here's the thing. I don't remember. I I have no idea which podcast this was on, but I posited this thing that like the best defenses in the league have like these multiple rim protectors, right? You have like your main major rim protector, your Brooke Lopez, your Jared Allen. Then you have like a four guy. That That was this podcast. That was a thinking basketball (laughs) podcast. You said that on a couple weeks ago. (laughs) Yes, thank you. I I didn't know if it was yesterday or a month ago or last year. Who knows when I say any of these things. But like I said that like all these best defenses need a big rim protector. And even some of the other best defenses, the Clippers, they have Avica Zubats. And even like Nick Batum and Paul George and all these guys are good defensive players. The Sixers obviously have Joel Embiid. The Pelicans don't have a good rim protector. Like none. Like Zion and Ingram, I think, are the only ones that are actually getting minutes and holding players to being worse at the rim than when they're uh, than they're usually shooting. And I find that really strange because when I watch, it just seems like they have these like frenetic backline rotations that prevent players from getting into the paint. Like they're like, all right, we're going to try and get you away from the paint as much as possible. But the numbers don't necessarily back that up. It's not like they're the best team in the league at preventing players from getting to the paint. 
So I, I'm really not sure what's going on. Like you said, Zion's looked good better, uh, has looked better, I should say, uh, with his rotations, but it's not perfect. Like you can still find multiple point times where like Alvarado's like pointing like multiple seconds ahead of time, like rotate, rotate, and Zion doesn't do it. Dyson Daniels has been pretty frisky defensively, uh, but still not perfect. There's a couple times you can find issues with rotations. Uh, Trey Murphy looks good. I've really liked Najee Marshall. He's been just unbelievable yeah, defensively. Yeah. So I think they have these interesting like lengthy three, four-ish guys, especially like Alvarado at the one, that can do a lot of stuff, but it feels like it's kind of hanging together by duct tape. Like, it doesn't seem like they have a cohesive anchor that's keeping their defense really strong. Well, if you look at uh, sort of shooting luck against, they actually have the best opponent three-point shooting luck on open and wide-open threes, according to second spectrum tracking. That's worth about two and a half points difference from league average. So that would bring them back down a little bit if they just had sort of like average, quote unquote, average shooting luck uh, back to the middle of the pack. So that could be one huge thing. But related to that, and I think this is usually a good signal. It's not definitively a good signal, but usually a good signal. They don't actually give up that many wide open threes during the course of a game. They're third in the league in terms of allowing wide open threes in the game. They give up about 14 per game for perspective the best defense in the league Cleveland gives up 21 a game so there isn't there isn't a one-to-one correlation but it's it's a signal that you know usually a lot of bad defenses Charlotte um, the Spurs you know teams like that they give up a lot of wide open threes so at least they're not those are usually upstream issues in the defensive possession so at least they're not you know seeing a signal there where they're getting cracked early on at the point of attack and giving up wide open threes. But yeah, I mean, I I could, I could buy in today's NBA if you have kind of switchy mobile lengthy units and then guys that can get into the point of attack. We, we teased it and talked about it last year with Lonzo ball and Alex Caruso in Chicago. And unfortunately, they haven't been able to really sort of stay healthy and and see that experiment through to its fullest. But if you think about both Jose Alvarado coming off the bench, and especially Herb Jones with the starting units, you usually have someone that can put pressure and get up into point of attack offensive creators uh, in pick and roll action and things like that. And then if you can move and kind of switch and rotate and have some length behind the play, even without rim protectors, you could see that being a solid defensive concept. And I think the nice thing about the Pelicans is they don't have to be an elite defense to be really good because they're hard to guard on the other end. So they're going to have, have a good offense. So just having like a top 12 or top 10 defense should put them at the top of the conference, basically. Yeah. And again, they're like playing to their strengths. Like they said, like you said, if you, if you don't have a good rim protector, don't funnel players towards your rim protector, right? Don't do drop (laughs) coverage. They don't do a lot of drop coverage. From what I've seen, they do a lot of hedging pick and roll, which requires everyone else in the backside to rotate. And then, you know, like I said, guys like Najee Marshall, guys like Dyson Daniels can split the the difference on the weak side really well. Jose Alvarado is just, oh my God. He's he's on a heater. Have you seen some of his numbers lately? Like he is, I think in the number, in the games when Ingram's not playing and Zion is, he's shooting like 70% true shooting. Like it's unbelievable that he is, he's on this heater. So the, I don't know, without Ingram, 
Pelicans have looked really fun. They're really good. And and what did you think of? Uh, did you catch this game against the Suns with Dyson Daniels and and any of his work, especially on Devin Booker? Yeah, I didn't watch that part of it closely. I was trying to watch some of the backline stuff because I was a lot more interested at the rim. But when he is on someone, like he's a really physical defender, and again, somebody yeah. that's really long and and can bother a player, especially that relies on tough sorts of mid range pull ups. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Yeah, they're 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 an interesting team. We'll we'll like I said, we're going to circle back and probably do some deeper dives on them uh, coming up in in future parts of the season. You know, the the other person I said I've been watching a lot lately is Anthony Davis with the Lakers, and this conversation is reminding me a little of Anthony Davis just on the on the statistical side. Like we're we're twenty five games into the season, we played a third of the season, um, twenty six, twenty seven games, whatever it is. What do we make of the Pelicans' defense? What do we make of the shift in Los Angeles? It's kind of a fascinating change if you haven't seen it. They're basically running more offense through Anthony Davis, but that doesn't mean throw Anthony Davis the ball and get out of the way. It doesn't mean throw Anthony Davis the ball and run pick and roll. It means actually involving Anthony Davis in a lot of pick and rolls as the roll man, but in geometric formations that allow him to thrive as a screener, right? Meaning space to roll into downhill. So uh, now that he's moving a little better again, this is very dangerous if you give him a giant alley that he can that he can burst by his defender and get downhill because that help that helps got to get there earlier. He's a lob threat or he can catch it and he's agile enough to finish and big enough to finish over smaller players in that area when he has room to adjust. He can pop and we know he's historically been an inconsistent shooter. I don't expect bubble Anthony Davis shooting to continue, but this jumper is now going. So if he pops, you can work off of that. And then the last thing is the switch. So a lot of teams are switching the pick and roll. The Lakers will run this pick and roll either lower on the court, down in the corner, deep corner, inside the three-point arc, just places that are not designed um, for someone someone like Dame Lillard or Steph Curry to excel. They're designed for the screener and roller Davis to excel. And so when teams switch that, when Russell, when Russell Westbrook sets it and someone goes under and Davis rolls and he brings the guard with him, that's just a mouse in the house. That's like they're just lobbing it in there and throwing it in there every time. And even um, when they don't get that look or entry pass, 
he's so good on the offensive glass. I think that's part of why his his rebounding numbers have been caught. You know, he's like, you look up his stats, it's like 36 points, 17 rebounds a game over the last 10 games or something. So it's it's an interesting little experiment down in Los Angeles that seems to have made them more competitive in the short term. You know, we kind of talked about this with Sabonis when we were doing our big Kings breakdown, and the same holds for Zion, same things hold for Giannis, same thing holds for Davis. When you have these guys that can just, like, bust a mismatch in the paint, it really changes the way that you have to defend them, right? Because, like, you you can switch everything, but if you have a player that's not going to physically be able to stand up to that, it's going to cause a lot of problems for you. Um, but, you know, something that you said that I think is interesting is you referenced the fact that they're getting him they're getting Anthony Davis into better positions to score, right? They're getting him more space. The geometry of the court is changing. What do you think has changed more? Or do you think it's pretty equal? Do you think that Anthony Davis himself just looks better and is individually playing better from earlier in the season? Or do you think that like the system in which the Lakers are using him just looks better than earlier this season? I think it's, I think it's a little of both. I think it's a little of both. Um, We've talked about, sort of his physical status a couple times over the last few years where he's he's been saddled with a lot of, with a lot of injuries his conditioning hasn't been elite maybe he's carrying a little more weight than he used to when he was younger you have natural aging and wear and tear so i said this before i'm pretty sure on this show i don't think it was on another show i think it was on this show i said uh davis if you go look at his film in like 2019 and 2020 before the bubble, the way he moves for his size is incredible. It, it is it is light and airy and flighty and agile and smooth. Um, pancake. And, and, yeah, what's that? Like a pancake. He's, he's a fluffy, yeah, he's a fluffy <laughs> pancake. But he could get up too, you know, like there are some lobs that he has where... Uh, I think I said this at the time, like you're talking about arguably the greatest lob finisher in the history of the sport. Just just ridiculous verticality on these plays, big wingspan. And then you throw on a game from like 2022 and you're like, oh, oh, he busted a tire. Like like what has happened? He just losing some of that movement and explosiveness chips away at so much of his game and so many of the places he creates advantages. And so He's still good, but you're no longer talking about one of the best players in the sport. I think from what I've seen in the last month or so, he's he's gotten a little bit of the way back. You know what I mean? It's still not the same, but his, his movement and his physicality uh, are much better than I think they've been in the last year or two when he's been going through real sort of bumpy times. And so I think that's helped. But then the other side of the equation helps as well, which is they've changed a lot of the structure of the offense to take advantage of him and lean on him more and say, hey, instead of running just LeBron ball or LeBron spread pick and roll, I mean, we don't have shooters, so we're running LeBron spread pick and roll, but the spacing isn't there. Now they're creating kind of that screening roll vertical lobs, lob threat spacing in a different way by doing things like clearing out the side of the floor. Or when you run that deep corner pick and roll, uh, Mo DeKeel has it on his Twitter with, with one Mo thing this or this week or last week. It's, it's recent. And, and you look at the, the, the actual geometric layout of what's happening. It's hard to stop Davis from having a little runway, even though you're much closer to the basket. Because the second he gets space, you can just 
LeBron or Russell Westbrook just throw it up five feet in the air and Davis can go get it. Or that little pocket pass in between the defender. You don't want to switch it down there because you could give LeBron or Westbrook a driving angle if you're not careful. So it's a way to create space specifically, I think, for Anthony Davis's strengths. LeBron James. Another I've heard of him. Yes. yes. I think we talked about him a couple times during the summer, right? Eons ago, this is a player that was pretty good. There's some numbers, Ben, that are really interesting, right? And I, I want to see what you make of these numbers. So I have I have your daily leaderboard pulled up on thinkingbasketball.net where we... Ooh, you know, this is getting exciting. Yeah, a yeah. lot of these numbers that we like to cite come from here. And there's some numerical things that are happening that have almost... I don't know if they've ever happened in LeBron's career, right? So Anthony Davis right now, he has a net on-off of plus 13.2. That's a very good indicator. That shows a player that's doing some stuff, right? LeBron James has a net on-off of negative 4.3. I don't know if I've ever seen a time when when the main teammate of LeBron has a better on-off number than LeBron. And, you know, when you think about Anthony Davis, right, I think a key point of that video where you talked about the fact that he's maybe the best lob finisher ever is he's this hybrid big, right? He's great at coexisting next to other guys. So you'd kind of think that, like, oh, the reason he's doing so well is LeBron is using him these ways. He's playing off LeBron really well. But it kind of seems like the LeBron part of the equation isn't looking great. So what what do you think about that? How, how does LeBron fit into how Anthony Davis and the Lakers are performing right now? Okay, so so let me get that right because the Lakers are five points per 100 worse with LeBron on the bench, correct? The Lakers are four points worse when LeBron is on the court versus when he's on the bench. Okay, you're right, right, right. I said yeah. I said it backwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. They're actually better when he's on the bench. Yeah, he, they're better when he's on the bench. Right, okay. So I believe, yes, the Lakers are being outscored when LeBron is on the court, but they're actually outscoring opponents by a couple points per 100. They have a positive net rating when Anthony Davis is on the court. And and that is certainly, you know, new. There's no LeBron there's no LeBron James team in the past where when LeBron's on the floor, they're like getting outscored and then you throw their other best player out there and they're outscoring the opponent. And and that is actually kind of what reminded me of our Pelicans conversation and sort of this like early season statistical noise, like what do you make of these stats? Because I think it's yet another example of how shaping the team and the roster and the strategy can influence something like plus minus, right? Where different instances and different context will reveal different numbers in these on-off, on-court offensive ratings, off-court offensive ratings. So in this case, one, more is built around AD when he's on the court. And then um, two, Russell Westbrook is coming off the bench. So Russell Westbrook still gets to serve as a kind of facilitator, and you don't lose as much of LeBron's playmaking as as maybe you have in the past in other teams and other circumstances. And so it's almost like you get a flipping of those numbers. And of course, the last thing to consider is just that LeBron James in 2023 isn't as good as LeBron James in 2021 or 2020. And Anthony Davis right now in 2023, especially for like the last couple weeks, the last month, whatever, he's been better. You know, he's playing better than he has in the last couple seasons. What do you think about him on the defensive side of the ball? Because when I'm looking at some of these numbers, even like the, the offensive rating on 
I'm still not used to the, I don't know if you do this, Ben, but I'm looking at some of these teams and players. And when I see the offensive ratings and I see something like 112 or 113, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good offensive rating. That's still like less than league average. I'm not used to league average offensive rating being like, what, what is it even? It's like 114, 113, 113.4. 113 and change. Yeah. That's, that's unbelievable. So like when Anthony Davis is on the court, it's a 115, which is like, I don't know. It's fine. So are you seeing like a lot of improvements with him? The the fluffy pancake pillowy movement from him? Is that showing up on defense as well? Is he sort of at the at the, you know, Anthony Davis is perennially in the defensive player of the year conversations? Are you seeing that from him as well? It's it's actually uh, I think you misread. It's actually 113 with him on the court. They're slightly they're slightly above average defensively when Davis is on the court. Hmm. And, and so I do think you're seeing improved defense. He's had some big games with blocks and steals. He's getting more active. Again, it's not back to where it was a couple of years ago, but it's much better in that um, I'm trying to remember the game. It might have been the Phoenix game that they lost recently, but you, you can see the variety of coverages and pick and roll where he's so good at basically anything. He can play drop. He can switch. Um, you know, he can come up high and then react as necessary. He can help in the paint. And so you'll see plays again where it's like he's using those movement patterns in that length to bother shots, recover, and then the hands are so active, like those plays where it's like, oh, I'm not going to block you. I'm going to challenge your shot. And then with my other hand, I'm going to do the old Bill Russell, Hakeem Olajuwon, get that thing down in the passing lane, nab a steal, and go the other way. So I, I do think he's been more active defensively. And and now that we've landed on it, like looking at looking at our board here uh, that you can access if you're a subscriber, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, his his multi-year defensive field goal percentage against in the paint. You know, Second Spectrum has this stat where you're the closest defender uh, on shots inside six feet. He is actually looking pretty good in that data over the last few years, and I think that's influenced by this year. He's in the 84th percentile, and the only other player on his team that's kind of in his universe is LeBron James, uh, who who, you know, is just such a continues to be such a smart, wise defender using his giant body and that sort of encyclopedia of, of opponents' actions and basketball knowledge that he has in his head. So you have that, and then you start looking around at like the other indicators and one-number metrics this year that, that we look at. Um, one in particular, 538's Raptor, has a defensive, on, uh, a box score only defensive component, meaning they don't look at that plus minus we were just talking about. They look at things that come from tracking data. They look at things like, you know, how much you influence shots in the paint and things like that. And he's in the 99th percentile this year (laughs) in that stat. Um, He's in the 96th percentile in defensive RPM. So to answer your question, to me, it's not quite what we saw when we saw that just transcendent sort of bubble performance where he was like a cheat code in every round. But I do think his defense in the last month, at least the handful of games that I've seen recently, uh, has looked better. And so I do think overall with the two-way player, you're seeing someone, again, not not in competition for one of the best players in the league in my assessment, but a guy who's back as a difference maker, you know, and maybe kind of like an all-NBA kind of impact player again. 
I don't know if this is too meta for right now. This could be its own episode, but I it it made me think of a conversation that I've been seeing on Twitter and and elsewhere lately. And it's this kind of common refrain I've been seeing for years, but it's bubbling up more, is that there are no good defensive metrics. Like we might as well throw out all defensive metrics because none of the none of them tell us anything useful. And you referenced a couple in there like defensive field goal percentage against especially in the paint. You talked about defensive raptor box score. Uh I don't know. How, how much do you ground your arguments in some of these things? What do you find useful? And, and are you, I don't know, do you feel the same way that we should just kind of ignore and throw out a lot of these defensive metrics? Uh, maybe. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because on our board that we're looking at, we've got sort of these different categories of stats. We have shooting stats. We have rim, rim stats. We have team level stats. We have offensive stats. We have overall impact numbers. And then there's just like a handful of stats that I reference for defense precisely because there aren't that many great or reliable defensive stats. I like the um, rim, the, the defensive field goal percentage against numbers in the paint that we just discussed. It's not perfect, but the one thing I like to do is contextualize it against the team. So that's actually my favorite part about the tool that we use on uh, that we've been referencing here is because you can put a team up on the board and then see where a player ranks relative to his teammates. I think that's a nice indicator. I think, as I said, defensive box Raptor is an interesting indicator because they're trying to use a bunch of tracking data. Uh, but a lot of the a lot of the defensive numbers, they're not that. They, they can't isolate skills in a granular way. They can't tell me how well someone navigates a screen. They can't tell me how well someone rotates. They can't tell me how well someone communicates. And then they're noisy. So you have this double whammy of like, we don't have any really good granular... Like on offense, the offensive box score stats that we've tracked over the years, going back to even like 1974 when we added turnovers, they are not perfect but they give you a pretty nice picture of offense and they give you some skills sort of really well, like free throw percentage and three-point shooting. And you put them together and you can figure out, okay, like this guy can shoot a basketball and this guy can't. 99% of the time, you can just do that. So even something like assists, which we've done so much work on over the years to, to move beyond assists, these are these are measuring more granular parts of the game. We don't have that on the defensive end. And I think that's part of the challenge. So you could take these big top-down one-number defensive metrics like defensive RPM. Uh, defensive RPM has gone fairly sideways, I think, in the last few years. I think um, dunks and threes with, with defensive EPM is probably the best single one-number metric that I can think of. But but to answer your question, like the spirit of your question, I'm looking heavily at the film for defense for those granular granular sort of tools and skills and then going and looking at these pieces of data that I've just referenced and trying to contextualize each one of those because I just don't think there are many reliable defensive uh, metrics to look at at the end of the day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. 
It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. A great example of this, and unfortunately it's a player that's just not playing enough for my heart's content, Ben. It still it still hurts me a little bit. But when you look at some of the defensive numbers... Uh-oh. Here we go. Here we go. Buckle, buckle up, up, everyone. Buckle, buckle up. up. Philadelphia, get ready. But in previous seasons... Matisse Thibel is just statistically the most active defender we've basically ever seen. Like, it blows everything out of the water. And we're looking at things like deflections, things like steals, things like even like charges drawn, stuff like this. And so when you see those numbers, it is telling you something. It is telling you that this player is extraordinarily active. This player does a lot of things that enter into some kind of box score, not the traditional box score, but still a box score somewhere. So he's out there doing stuff. But as your video broke down, um, and I remember talking with Mike a lot about this too, because he was he was deep in the Matisse Thibel weeds as well. But the video that you put out, I think last year about him, this just is, showed this is Mike, our our Mike, our video coordinator, Mike. No, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan. When we okay, when we oh, were sorry, about, yeah, you, yes, no, no, yeah, Mike De La Rosa, just brilliant <laughs> video coordinator. But uh, this idea that Thibel has a lot of these warts defensively, and those things don't pick up on the things that he can gamble a lot. He can kind of run like the free safety thing. He gets caught up on screens and stuff like that. And, you know, like you said, I always really like looking at how many times is a big man contesting in the paint, and then what is the defensive field goal percentage against? I don't really like the defensive field goal percentage against for players on the perimeter. I think Kevin Durant might have some really good indicators for that, and I've seen that thrown around. And It's, I, it's too noisy. Yeah, yeah. That, that's particularly yeah. noisy, I think. So, I don't know. They at least tell you something. I don't like when people are like, we need to throw this all out because it's not telling you anything. It's just not spoon-feeding you a conclusion. It is a, a part of an argument that one could make, but you have to make sure you're using it correctly. Yeah, if you if you look at the year-to-year numbers, especially when players change context and things like that, you get some stability in, the, in an indicator like uh, defensive field goal percentage near the basket that we have been alluding to in this episode. But when you look at the perimeter, you don't necessarily see that. And it's funny because, Cody, years ago, I stack tracked i hand tracked a number of things um this is like 2010 2011 and this is what led to things like box creation and passer rating looking at playmaking and how players move uh defenders well i did a ton of defensive work as well uh when, when i did that and one of the things i was most excited about was like this idea that like why doesn't the box score have who the shot was against like someone comes down and they make a 17 footer and it goes in the play-by-play 17-foot, two-point shot, assisted or unassisted by Kevin Durant. Why doesn't it say that Jason Tatum was guarding him on that play? And this always really bothered me. And so I hand-tracked, like, a lot of possessions and hundreds and hundreds or maybe even... I can't remember at this point. I did both playoffs and a ton of regular season games. And I looked at all this defensive field goal percentage data, and it's like, yes, I think because of the stuff at the rim you generally will see like really good defenders do better in that stat overall. But it turns out it's actually really noisy because there isn't a one-to-one sort of relationship between shooting the ball on offense and defending a shot on defense. They're, they're totally different things. And we've alluded to this before, but it's this idea of that like defense in basketball is really a five-man cohesive unit. And I think that's why it makes the metrics and measuring it 
so tricky because you can't just go you can't just go to offense and say give me the defensive version of this stat you can't be like what is okay what is the defensive version of an assist an assist against so i'm i'm thinking about this i, I want to know how you were able to i guess differentiate who should have I, I don't know if there's an aspect of who should have been contesting because i'm thinking of back to a couple days ago i don't remember when it was that the pelicans were playing the pistons but the pelicans were kind of running this action where they're set up in like a horns formation right they have two bigs at the different elbows and then you know one of them set a flare screen and there was one possession because they ran it like three times in a row where hayes hayes thinks that there's going to be a switch i think he and sadiq bay are sort of there. Bay thinks the Hayes is going to be chasing. Hayes ends up standing there because he thinks there's going to be a switch. And there's a second where I think where Bay goes, Hay might actually continue tracking. But let's say that Bay had tried to continue the uh, the the switch and then goes to contest. Would you count that as against Sadiq Bay for being late on the contest while they hit an open three? Or would you be like, well, actually, Hayes should have been the one that contested that and hit the three. How do you work with this when there seems to be a breakdown and the person that shouldn't be contesting tries to make a late contest and they get a shot made over them? I, I don't know. That's the first thing I think about when it comes to like hand tracking who should be involved with the contest. Well, I, I think that's a great example because it's not about necessarily who gets credit for what. In those situations, and just so everyone understands, with the tracking data, when we're talking about nearest defender, there are times where if you and I watch the tape back, we would all agree that the nearest defender was not the guy who the machine credited as being the nearest defender. So it's not always perfect there either. It, it, it does very well most of the time from the clips I've been able to see, but sometimes it misses and sometimes there are weird ones where like someone gets broken down off the dribble and then like the only other teammate like 20 feet away gets credited as the defender but not the guy who got blown by off the dribble so just so everyone understands that's what we're talking about when we look at the actual data that you find on on nba.com that second spectrum provides but to your question i would say the big thing there happening is not that one of those guys gets credited with the shot right? Because there's noise in the shot, just like we were talking about three-point shooting luck against earlier in the show. There's noise. So the bigger thing is not the actual result of that one play, because that that all doesn't always end up in a shot, right? Someone someone botches a switch or, or someone gets around a screen or someone makes a late... Like, you have that breakdown, that could lead to someone else getting a shot. That could lead to two passes and someone else getting a layup. And so it's the totality of that action that really drives defensive impact. You don't want to need help from a teammate as often. If you need help from a teammate, it should be structured. You should funnel them in the right direction. It should be within sort of the scouting report and the game plan of the defensive principles. Golden State does this well, where they know that a guy's going to come from the weak side and overload on the near side block. And so you can funnel him baseline. That's what you want, right? What you don't want is the example we talked about with Anthony Edwards a couple episodes ago, where... Carl Anthony Towns is coming up high on the other side of the screen and you absolutely have to let your man go around the screen. You cannot get crossed over and go go the other way because now you don't have a teammate there anymore. So it's less about like that problem to me. Oh, who do we credit the shot against and more about who is having the breakdown? Um, who is letting the opponent create an advantage? 
who isn't rotating to shore up advantages. When I think of the great defenders of all time, when I think of Draymond Green, when I think of Kevin Garnett, when I think of Tim Duncan, one of the things those guys do, besides their own responsibility very well, is they make plays on film where they sit, they they correct someone else's mistake in a way that you're just like, I can't find any other players that do that. That was how did he get from one side of the court to the other side of the court in two seconds and block what looked like a wide open layup. Yeah, it, that seems to be the differentiator when it comes to the all-time defensive players. Like, there can be good team defenders, right? Like, this guy made a good backline rotation. This guy made a good coverage. Maybe he helped out and was like, oh, I'm actually going to run to the paint and try and strip this guy here. But, you know, when you think about the all-time, the Giannis blocking the DeAndre Ayton alley-oop, like, when you watch that play, if your first reaction is, that's impossible, <laughs> that that shouldn't <laughs> happen. When you see LeBron James chase down and block Andre Iguodala and you're like, that... No, like you can count on like half a hand the amount of players that could have pulled something off like that. That's what really separates when we're talking about like the best and and I don't know, like a mediocre average sort of defender. But I think like ultimately the point is that like, you know, I don't want it to be like, a, you know, pointing my finger, wagging and be like, watch the game, kids. That's how you figure out defense because the defensive metrics point us into some kind of direction. We just can't be drawing big time conclusions from those because there's a lot of intricate stuff that happens defensively. Yeah, and I think teams privately probably have more granular data that they can pull from from tracking numbers. You can look at um, certain pairings, like for instance, how how well does someone defend and drop coverage? You know, the, certain numbers like that. I like to look at and cite. I think when we were doing the Timber, Timberwolves video, I had some numbers on Rudy Gobert in drop specifically, and how like if you actually pull up, if you watch the games and you look at the, I can't remember how many times, 80 times or whatever, 100 times he's been in drop coverage. You Yes, you can look at the number of points they scored, but the other thing you can just do is watch the plays and evaluate the shot quality yourself and realize like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of turnovers in there. There's a bunch of plays that go nowhere. There's a bunch of misses and blocks. And then when you go check the data, you see, oh, when Rudy Gobert is in drop coverage, even in Minnesota this year, they're scoring... 0.85 points per possession on those plays. That's obviously fantastic defense. So there are definitely um, granular metrics that I think teams have or that you can use. But to your point about watching film, Cody, you can just chart things on film as well, right? Like you could you could watch 100 Matisse Thibault possessions and see how many times he lets the guy get by him and get downhill and then chart what happens. And my hunch in the case of Matisse is that you would have a guy who leads the league in kind of defensive playmaking, right? Like one of the one of the stats we have on our board is forced turnovers, which looks at steals and looks at charges and offensive fouls drawn. Um, and if we could do more, sometimes there are plays where like the ball is slapped off a guy's leg and it's not counted as a steal. It's very frustrating to me. Those should be counted as steals. You slap it off a guy's leg, it goes out of bounds. And in the, in the box score, it's just a turnover for the offensive player. But if you could look at all that and look at Matisse, I think what you'd get in those possessions where he's in rear view pursuit is you'd get a ton of turnovers compared to everyone else when they're beaten off the screen. But then you would also get, and I, I had this in the video, you might also get more plays where they end up with layups or wide open threes because of the nature of scrambling the defense. And so it's like, yes, if I only checked 
Matisse in terms of like his chaos numbers, like forced turnovers, defensive playmaking kind of numbers. I mean, for instance, the guy this year who leads the league in forced turnovers right now per possession is Alex Caruso. Not not a huge surprise. Just just a um, awesome on ball point of attack defender. But what we don't have is a stat for like what happened the rest of the time. What we don't have is a stat for when player A has someone get downhill on them in their team concept, when Jordan Poole has someone get downhill on them and the Warriors funnel and react and all that, and Draymond Green is behind them, how how costly is that compared to when it happens in Philadelphia? That, that's what we don't have. And those are the kinds of things that uh, hopefully we'll get more of in the future, but it's also why it's like hard to use the same kind of statistics to think about defense and why it's easier just to go look at, I think, certain concepts and actions on film and say like, okay, consistently he's great around about getting around this screen. Consistently, he struggles getting around this screen. Consistently, he communicates switches and they're perfect. Or consistently, this guy's always involved in botched switches for some reason. He must not be talking well. And I think this is what makes the medium of Twitter for trying to make these kinds of arguments really difficult because the nature of Twitter is like, I, I don't know, things have changed. Maybe you can share up to four videos now. Who knows? I, it, it feels like you can either share one or two or whatever else. But 4,000 characters. Yeah. That's what you can do on Twitter now. Yeah, sure. You could tell me anything and I would believe you. Literally anything and I would believe you. But my point with that is that most people, when they're sharing plays, they like post a play and they're like... Dyson Daniels has been great on defense. Check at this backline rotation. And there's kind of like this implicit, tr- impl- implicit, that was a tough word, Ben. This implicit trust where you're like, okay, I'm trusting that this poster has done the homework that is not being shared. And you're kind of distilling that with like the singular play, right? But like also the nature of Twitter is like, I'm trying to share this play so that it could get shared to a wider audience and gets more reactions. So it's kind of this interesting dance where it's like, I, I don't know. That is a good way to share some of these plays, but it can be really dangerous. That's like, are we using the single play to paint a picture for everything? Or is this just like you saw this play last game and now you're pointing to it and being like, oh, look at how much better he is defensively or look at how good he is defensively here. Yep. Yep. And that's that's where data and consistent data really helps. Um, and that, of course, is where, you know, if you can have a deeper film study or more comprehensive film study than just one example it helps as well, but you're you're absolutely right. This is this is uh, this is all what what makes it tricky. And um, I don't know. I don't I don't have an easy answer as of right now. You know, like and especially for players that you don't get to focus on too much defensively. We were talking about Tyrese Halliburton's passing and his playmaking and all this stuff on offense. And you know, you asked me like, well, what do, what do you think of his defense these days? And I'm like, well, I haven't, I haven't, I don't know if I've seen him play defense. <laughs> I mean, he's been on the court in the games I'm watching, but I'm just doing so many other things that like, it doesn't jump out. I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, you know, what direction Tyrese Halliburton's defense is blowing in this season compared to where I saw him last season in Sacramento. So yeah. Um, hopefully this is, do you think this has made amends to the magic fans? Yeah. This whole episode, I I hope they took this whole episode as just an elongated apology. 
Excellent. That's what we were going for. Um, if you want to support this show and get access to the data we've been talking about throughout this episode, patreon.com slash thinking basketball is the place to go. We also have our live monthly Q&A coming up this Saturday. That is December 17th. Those are a lot of fun. We bat around questions for about an hour. Uh, and of course, the the group there likes to ask me anything but whatever we're currently talking about uh, on Thinking Basketball. Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball, best way to support us. Thanks, as always, for listening to this one all the way through. And wherever you are listening, I, of course, hope you are having a great day. <laughs>